gluconeogenesis. We don't have to eat carbohydrate because we can make it from other things in our diet like protein. But being gluconeogenic ain't easy. As far as your ATP supply is concerned, it might just break the bank. But hey, liver's gotta do what the liver's gotta do, am I right? Let's take a look. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 29th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. Today we're talking about the basic mechanisms of gluconeogenesis and why it's so energetically expensive. Let's dig right into it. As shown on the screen, glucose can be derived in gluconeogenesis from glycerol, amino acids, or lactate. Amino acids are going to be the main supply of glucose in gluconeogenesis. There are two tissues that are primarily responsible for engaging in gluconeogenesis for the sake of the rest of the body by making glucose that will be released into the blood for consumption by other tissues. These are the liver and the kidney. Of the two, it's mainly the liver that engages in this process. Other tissues, including skeletal muscle, brain, and heart, have a limited capacity to engage in gluconeogenesis for their own use. In this case, glucose won't be sent into the blood, it'll be consumed by the tissues that made it for their own needs. Since the liver is the main organ engaging in gluconeogenesis, we will use how it happens in the liver as our framework for discussing its mechanisms today. Shown on the screen are the delta G naught primes of the glycolytic reactions that we first discussed in the context of lesson 21, where our objective was to discuss why certain steps with large negative delta Gs involve irreversible commitments of glucose or intermediates to certain fates that we need to strongly regulate. Today, we're concerned with these from the perspective of going back up in the opposite direction. If we want to go from pyruvate to glucose, which would be gluconeogenesis, then when we hit irreversible steps that are irreversible in the direction opposite to the one we're trying to go in, we won't be able to go up backwards unless we find a way to circumvent those steps. For that reason, we'll see that gluconeogenesis is not an exact reversal of glycolysis. Still, many of the steps are reversed and we harness those steps whenever we can. To understand which ones are reversed and which ones aren't, we need to look at the delta G naught primes. You can see that there are four steps with large negative delta Gs. These include the phosphorylation of glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, the phosphorylation of fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, and the two substrate-level phosphorylations where we synthesize ATP during the conversion of 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate to 3-phosphoglycerate and during the conversion of phosphenyl pyruvate to pyruvate. 
Three of these are truly irreversible. One of them is shown in orange because it is reversible, but its reversibility deserves some explanation. The other three are shown in red. The conversion of 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate to 3-phosphoglycerate is catalyzed by phosphoglycerate kinase. And it is, in fact, reversed in gluconeogenesis in the exact opposite direction. In fact, the name of the enzyme is phosphoglycerate kinase. A kinase is an enzyme that phosphorylates something with ATP. So the name of that enzyme is actually named after the reaction it catalyzes in gluconeogenesis rather than glycolysis. And that reflects the fact that we do reverse that step. But why can we reverse that step and not the others with large negative delta Gs? Well, let's think through this a bit. First of all, as we're looking at these numbers, remember that they're the delta G naught primes. They refer to equal concentrations of everything, and they disregard the fact that we could have differences in substrate concentrations that would alter the true delta Gs during these reactions. So we want to keep in mind that during conditions of gluconeogenesis, as we'll see as this and the next lesson evolved, evolve, we are only doing that in times where the cells engaging in gluconeogenesis have enough energy for their own needs and have extra energy to invest in synthesizing glucose. Under those conditions, ATP concentrations are high, which modifies the delta G for any reactions that involve the synthesis or breakdown of ATP. So let's keep that in mind and layer it on top of looking at what's implied by the delta G naught primes. In the initial phosphorylation of glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, we take ATP energy and release it. A portion of that energy is invested in the glucose 6-phosphate molecule, but there's a ton left over because the phosphate in glucose 6-phosphate is in a more stable, lower energy position than the phosphate in the ATP molecule. The energy that's left over is what is responsible for the large negative delta G, and it's largely evolved into the environment as heat. Once it's evolved into the environment as heat, it can never be brought back. If we were to try to reverse that reaction, we would have to take ADP and a hydrogen ion, extract energy from the glucose 6-phosphate molecule, and make ATP with it. But there's less energy in the glucose 6-phosphate molecule than there is in the ATP molecule for the reasons that we just stated. That means that there's simply not enough energy in that molecule to fuel the production of ATP. Now, layer on top of that, that if perhaps we had a lot of glucose 6-phosphate, extreme concentrations, and a lot of ADP, extreme concentrations, then maybe we could alter the delta G in a way that would favor reversibility of that reaction. But that would not happen in gluconeogenesis, because in gluconeogenesis, we only engage in the process when we have a lot of ATP because we're in a high energy state. 
So in a high energy state, trying to produce ATP under those conditions would be even less favorable than they would be under the conditions that reflect the delta G naught primes that are displayed on the screen. The same exact thing is true about the conversion of fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. When we come down to 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate, we notice a curiosity. We're doing what we just said we couldn't do up top. We're taking ADP and a hydrogen ion, extracting energy and phosphate from the molecule, and making ATP. The reason we can do it there is because of what happened in the previous step. NAD plus released enough energy to take a phosphate, put it into a high energy, unstable position on the molecule so it could hold on to energy and wait for ADP to come and get it. The phosphate on that molecule was put into an unstable position driven by the energy released by NAD plus which happened to be more than what was needed to make ATP. Because of that, ADP comes along, makes ATP, and there's still enough left over for a large negative delta G. Well, that explains why we can engage in substrate-level phosphorylation despite the fact that we would think we couldn't based on what we said above. Why we can go in the opposite direction is more intuitive. Because in the opposite direction, we're breaking apart ATP, we're deriving its energy, and we're using that energy to fuel the addition of phosphate to 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate. Nevertheless, that phosphate is in the same high energy position when we, go, when we produce 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate in that direction as it would be if we went in the opposite direction. So why can we do it? Because the delta G naught primes aren't the real delta Gs that incur in the specific situations in the cell. Remember that during gluconeogenesis, we actually have an abundance of ATP that makes the opposite direction more energetically favorable. So because of the accumulation of ATP in the relevant substrates, that's what brings the delta G down to something that is reversible. By contrast, when we get down to phosphoenolpyruvate, the reason we have such a large negative delta G is we're going from, from the highly unstable enol to this much more stable alpha-keto acid pyruvate. The reasons for the greater stability of an enol versus an alpha-keto acid were explained in lesson six. The difference in stability is so great that not only can we engage in substrate-level phosphorylation, but we have a large negative delta G left over that's actually about 50% greater than the large negative delta G that's left over in the conversion of 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate to 3-phosphoglycerate. So when we go backwards in gluconeogenesis, we could argue that the abundance of ATP and the relevant substrates should allow us to reverse this reaction. But we have to consider that the large negative delta G of that reaction is way bigger than the large negative delta G of the, pre, of the other reaction. And that much larger negative delta G going from phosphoenolpyruvate to pyruvate is what makes that step irreversible regardless of the abundance of ATP and pyruvate. 
So in net, what we have is three reactions shown in red, the conversion of glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, the conversion of fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, and the conversion of phosphoenolpyruvate to pyruvate that constitute the three steps that we cannot reverse in gluconeogenesis. We should also note that when we reverse phosphoglycerate kinase, we are doing so in a way where instead of gaining an ATP or two ATP per glucose that comes in, because remember everything in the bottom half happens twice, not only are we not gaining that ATP, but we're using up, we're spending two ATP to make that reaction reverse. And that's one component of why gluconeogenesis is so energetically expensive. To overcome the three irreversible steps of glycolysis, we need four enzymes. Pyruvate carboxylase, which we previously saw in lesson 16 when we talked about anaplerosis, converts pyruvate to oxaloacetate. Phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase, abbreviated as PEPCK or PEPCK, converts oxaloacetate to phosphoenolpyruvate. Those two steps provide a roundabout way to get around the enormously large negative delta G of the, end of the step that goes in the opposite direction. We can go up now through the reversible reactions of glycolysis till we get to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Then we need to get around the next irreversible step, and we do that with fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase. Then the conversion of fructose 6-phosphate to glucose 6-phosphate is reversible, but then for the final step, we need glucose 6-phosphatase. Altogether, that's four enzymes to get around the three irreversible reactions. As we talked about in lesson 15, pyruvate can be converted to lactate, but lactate can be converted to pyruvate because this reaction is reversible. So lactate in the liver will enter gluconeogenesis through L-lactate dehydrogenase, the same enzyme that would have converted pyruvate to lactate in another tissue such as muscle. In lesson 16 on anaplerosis, we talked about how pyruvate could be converted through transamination into alanine, an amino acid. Alanine can also be converted into pyruvate through the same enzymatic system, and that's how alanine would enter gluconeogenesis. Remember that, as we talked about a few slides ago, Pyruvate enters gluconeogenesis itself by being converted to oxaloacetate first. That means that anything else that can be converted to oxaloacetate can enter gluconeogenesis, skipping over pyruvate production by generating oxaloacetate. Anything that yields oxaloacetate or any of its precursors can enter gluconeogenesis through the citric acid cycle. In lesson eight, we talked about how aspartate can become oxaloacetate or how glutamate can become alpha-ketoglutarate. Alpha-ketoglutarate can then become oxaloacetate through the citric acid cycle, and oxaloacetate can leave and enter gluconeogenesis. This is not a complete discussion of how amino acids enter the gluconeogenic pathway. We'll talk way more about that when we get to protein. But for now, we can say that other amino acids can generate pyruvate, and other amino acids can generate oxaloacetate or other citric acid cycle intermediates. 
but these general principles that lactate enters through conversion to pyruvate and that amino acids enter through conversion either to pyruvate, to oxaloacetate, or to any precursors of oxaloacetate provide the general framework for understanding how these substrates enter gluconeogenesis. Since pyruvate has to be converted to oxaloacetate to get around the irreversible last step of glycolysis, it needs to go into the mitochondrion where it has access to the pyruvate carboxylase to generate oxaloacetate. Oxaloacetate accumulates and goes backwards through the citric acid cycle reaction to generate malate. Malate leaves the mitochondrion into the cytosol. Through the same enzyme system, malate dehydrogenase gets returned to cytosolic oxaloacetate. And then the cytosolic oxaloacetate has access to PEPCK to become phosphoenylpyruvate. Notice that the conversion of pyruvate to oxaloacetate requires ATP. The conversion of oxaloacetate to phosphoenylpyruvate requires GTP. GTP is equilibrated with the pool of ATP such that the use of one GTP could be considered equivalent to the use of one ATP. Right here we have two ATP per pyruvate that enter. And since two pyruvate are needed to make glucose, that means from what we see already here, the full gluconeogenic pathway would require two ATP for two pyruvate, two GTP for two conversions of oxaloacetate to phosphoenylpyruvate. And we already talked about how the reversal of phosphoglycerate kinase will require two more ATP. That's six equivalents of ATP worth of energy to get through gluconeogenesis. Shown on the top is the basic problem that we would face if we were to try to convert pyruvate to phosphoenylpyruvate in one step by reversing the last reaction of glycolysis. On the bottom, we see its solution, which is the way that we actually overcome that reaction in two steps during gluconeogenesis. In pyruvate, we have a double bond, shown in red, in a keto position. That makes pyruvate an alpha keto acid, which is a relatively stable position for a double bond. When we go to phosphoenylpyruvate, that double bond, shown in red, moves into the carbon-carbon position, and we wind up with an enol. And as we discussed in lesson six, given the choice between an enol and a ketone, the ketone will always be far more favored because a double bond is in a much more stable position between carbon and oxygen than it is between carbon and carbon. That makes it extremely energetically unfavorable to go from an alpha keto acid to an enol, or to go specifically from pyruvate to phosphoenylpyruvate. That's reflected in the large positive delta G of 31 kilojoules per mole. That's what makes this step not feasible for gluconeogenesis. In contrast, what we do below is our actual strategy to get around that step in two additional steps. The first step is catalyzed by pyruvate carboxylase. And in that case, what we're doing is we're incorporating carbon dioxide through bicarbonate as an intermediate to become an additional carbon, an additional carboxyl group at the bottom of the molecule. That carboxyl group is in a very unstable position because you can see that alpha, beta, to it 
is a keto group. For all the reasons that we discussed in lesson six, beta keto acids are extremely unstable. The reason we're able to add that carboxyl group is because we leveraged energy from ATP to do so. But check out what we did in the process. In order to add the carboxyl group there, we had to chop off one of the hydrogens in the last carbon to make a binding site. Now that carbon is CH2. If this carbon dioxide is unstable and can easily be decarboxylated, that means that we've put this last carbon in a position where it's going to need something to bind to, and that's gonna make it more likely to bind to the carbon above it in a double bond, especially if something else comes in at the same time and binds to the oxygen. That's exactly what Pepsi-K catalyzes. On the one hand, carbon dioxide is released, GTP comes in and donates a phosphate. The fact that this last carbon needs something extra to bind to, and the fact that phosphate came in and got added to the oxygen makes it easy to form the double bond between the two carbons. It's still energetically unfavorable to do so, but look at what we've done. In a two-step process, we've consumed two ATP equivalents, which is a lot of energy, and we've done it in a way that slowly reconstructs what we're looking for, first by removing a hydrogen from what will be the last carbon, and then by creating the situation that favors the formation of the double bond and the addition of phosphate. Now that we've done this, we've brought positive 31 kilojoules per mole down to plus 0.8 kilojoules per mole. That's an essentially reversible reaction. What that means is that although Pepsi-K can go either way, the conditions that we have favoring gluconeogenesis will favor us going in the gluconeogenic direction. Glycerol enters gluconeogenesis much later in the pathway. We first looked at how glycerol could intersect with the glycolytic pathway in the context of lesson 26 on how insulin promotes fat storage. Now we can look at the same set of reactions as the way in which glycerol would enter gluconeogenesis. If we hydrolyze the triglyceride, we release the glycerol backbone. Glycerol kinase uses ATP in the liver to make glycerol phosphate. Glycerol phosphate can then go through glycerol phosphate dehydrogenase to make dihydroxyacetone phosphate. Dihydroxyacetone phosphate can be converted to glyceraldehyde phosphate. And depending on the energy status of the cell and the regulatory regulation of glycolysis versus gluconeogenesis that could go into the rest of glycolysis, but under conditions favoring gluconeogenesis, that then becomes part of the gluconeogenic pathway. Notice that because glycerol enters so late, it skips over several rounds of utilizing ATP, but it has its own ATP utilization. So when we utilize glycerol, we're using two glycerol to make one glucose, and we're using up two ATP to get it into glycolysis per glucose molecule. Lactate will enter glycolysis through pyruvate, as will certain amino acids. Other amino acids will enter through oxaloacetate. 
After we get past phosphoenolpyruvate, we will eventually get through the reversible reactions of glycolysis to the triosphosphates, which is where glycerol enters. After that point, we have more reversible reactions until we get to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. That's when we reach our next irreversible reaction. The reason that the next reaction of glycolysis is irreversible is because to truly reverse it, we would have to take away phosphate and energy from the fructose 1,6-bisphosphate molecule and synthesize ATP. But to do that would require investing more energy in the ATP molecule than we can harness by taking the phosphate off of that molecule. The way we get around that is to not bother trying to synthesize ATP. Simply removing the phosphate from that molecule is energetically favorable. So we can simply hydrolyze it to generate free inorganic phosphate, and that's what we do with fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase. That actually gives us an irreversible step in the gluconeogenic direction. Then we go from fructose 6-phosphate to glucose 6-phosphate, and that step is reversible. If we're doing this in tissues that are using glucose for their own needs, they will not go any further because they don't have the enzyme glucose 6-phosphatase. So for example, the small amount of gluconeogenesis that happens in the brain, the skeletal muscle, the heart, will end at glucose 6-phosphate. But in the liver, and to a lesser extent the kidney, you want to free up the glucose 6-phosphate into free glucose so that it will then go through glucose transporters out of the cell into the blood. You do that with glucose 6-phosphatase, which catalyzes the same reaction as fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, hydrolyzing the phosphate. And again, that is energetically favorable because you're not trying to synthesize ATP. And in fact, it's energetically favorable enough that it's irreversible in the gluconeogenic direction. Gluconeogenesis is expensive. If we're using the full pathway all, all the way from pyruvate, look at the uses of ATP. Pyruvate carboxylase, per glucose molecule, uses 2-ATP. Pepsi-K, per glucose molecule, uses 2-GTP. The function of these two steps is to circumvent pyruvate kinase. Then we reverse the glycolytic enzyme phosphoglycerate kinase. Instead of generating 2-ATP, we consume 2-ATP. Altogether, we're consuming the equivalent of 6-ATP when we use the full pathway. Now, notice that depending on what your substrate is, you can make this less expensive. For example, if you use amino acids that enter in to oxaloacetate, you can overcome the use of pyruvate carboxylase and lower the ATP demand by two. If you use glycerol, you bypass all of this and you only use two ATP for the glycerol kinase that you need to get glycerol to glycerol 3-phosphate so that it can eventually enter into the pathway. When using the full pathway, gluconeogenesis is three times as expensive as it would be to reverse glycolysis. 
What we actually do is shown on the top. We take 2 pyruvate plus 4 ATP plus 2 GTP plus 2 NADH plus 6 water, and we make 1 glucose, 4 ADP, 2 GTP, 6 inorganic phosphate, 2 NAD plus, and 2 hydrogen ions. That full stoichiometry all nets to a delta G naught prime of negative 48 kilojoules per mole, which is energetically favorable. We do that instead of reversing glycolysis. What we don't do is shown on the bottom. 2 pyruvate plus 2 ATP plus 1 NADH plus 2 water would make 1 glucose, 2 ADP, 2 inorganic phosphate, 2 NAD plus, and 2 hydrogen ions. That's the stoichiometry of perfectly reversing glycolysis, which doesn't happen because it can't happen. It nets to a delta G naught prime of positive 90 kilojoules per mole. That's completely energetically infeasible. We reverse glycolysis through the additional steps of gluconeogenesis to make it energetically favorable. But that means that it costs us the equivalent of 6 ATP instead of costing us 2 ATP. Think of glucose, which breaking it in half in other tissues is going to yield 2 ATP. Think, for example, of the red blood cell that lacks mitochondria. It relies entirely on the cytosolic production of glucose, where 2 ATP are yielded in glycolysis. If it needs to get that glucose from gluconeogenesis in the liver instead of glucose from the diet, then 6 ATPs worth of energy need to be spent for every 2 that are gained in the red blood cell. That's a massive loss of energy. Now, you could look at this in two ways. If you're looking at this from the perspective of a metabolic advantage to low carb, you could certainly argue that this is one of the pathways that makes it plausible that if someone pushed themselves into the extremes of needing a lot more gluconeogenesis than anyone usually would, because they've brought their glucose consumption so low that we need to use this pathway to meet the basic core irreversible requirements of red blood cells, brain cells, the lens and cornea, the eye, the kidney medulla, and any of the tissues that have an absolute requirement for some level of glucose. If we push glucose that low, then you could argue that wasting this energy would be a benefit to weight loss. Would it be a big benefit? Probably not as meaningful as actually managing your calories, but it could fit into the calculation somewhere. But we can also look at this from the perspective of how stressful is it for your body to be forced in such a into such a profoundly inefficient process. One of the most pervasive themes of biology is that we have evolved to use energy as efficiently as possible. We do that because wasting energy is wasting precious energy that we need to be healthy. So the body is going to be hardwired to prevent gluconeogenesis from happening, except to the extent that it's necessary. As we look in the next 
several lessons on the regulation of gluconeogenesis, we will ultimately see that it's part of a general stress response to have it elevated above the levels that would always happen during basic normal physiology. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. To continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, or my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn. Or you can sign up for MWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable audio and transcripts, and a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions with a community with a forum for each lesson. If you really want to own these lessons, study them, and get the most out of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.